Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by BioOptimizers P3OM. P3OM uses a patented probiotic strain. P3OM is used to help fight gut parasites and pathogens. If you head over to p3om.com forward slash human, you can see their video of it breaking down a piece of steak in a Petri dish. BioOptimizers is confident you will like their product, so they offer a money back guarantee. Please visit their site to see the guaranteed details before purchasing. If you would like to give them a try, head over to the letter P, the number three, the letters om.com forward slash human and enter the code HUMAN10 for an extra 10% off your next purchase. Now, on to the next topic. It's on Saturday, Saturday morning for you, isn't it? Saturday, Saturday yeah. morning for me. That's right. Yeah, we're finishing up Friday. I've got to go to dinner with uh, some Eric Westman and some of the low-carb people tonight here. So, oh, cool. So. Yeah, I was just in New Zealand not too long ago, Paul, so similar time zone to where you're at, and it's always kind of weird especially coming back because you leave and you kind of, you get back on essentially the same day and time. And then it's like, oh, I guess I got one more day, but heading out to the opposite. So well, it's always- you can actually get stuck. My first trip to America, I, uh, I went to uh, the ATM at the airport and I made a withdrawal just to cover me for the incidental expenses on the flight. And I land in America and I'm like, right now I'm broke. I got no cash. And I went to the ATM and they said, no, you've already made a withdrawal today. And I didn't realize that they had this, <laughs> yeah thing where you could only make one withdrawal a day and like well hang on that was yesterday it's like uh-uh, that's today yeah <laughs> you know and it's like shit i'm shit out of luck i'm stuck in lax with no money <laughs> so i literally had to scrounge enough money for a bus fare to get where i was going and i had like six dollars or something and oh man that's what i lived on for the first day so six dollars doesn't get you very far anywhere but in la it hardly gets you uh, across the street to the mcdonald's i don't think yeah, it's, it's a bus fare it's literally yeah. a bus fare <laughs> and a day of fasting yeah, yeah no well, hey paul i don't know how much time you have. i just got notified i guess got noticed notified that my dinner was moved back an extra half hour so i can chat longer if, if I'm good for time, guys. We're good, good for an awesome. hour, hour and a half. We normally, awesome. I normally rabbit on a bit too long anyway, so that's no, not a bad thing. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I was going to say, I've, I've got to get back down to that part of the world. I know that, um, you know, as I, I got a bunch of European trips this year, I've got one to Brazil and I've got, uh, I guess, early next year, I'm going to South Africa. So I got to get down to Australia, New Zealand again. I, well, shit, we've got the crazy Irishman coming out in May. Oh yeah, <laughs> I no. was getting out there. Awesome. Pending this whole uh, coronavirus. Yeah, business. I know. Yeah, like I said, I've got to, I've got to get tickets to Spain here for for May, and I'm just kind of like I haven't bought the tickets yet, but I'm just. Like, I would hold. Then the prize yeah. tickets are going to go down if anything. Yeah, maybe so. Let's but I don't know if you guys had a chance to look. I did a lecture a uh, a few weeks back on ketogenic diet and athletes, which is sort of right up your ballpark. Yeah, I haven't. I know you wanted to talk about that. I know we got. Well, I. 
I was actually debating Louise Burke. Oh, did you? Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. she was the, you know, she's the uh, quote-unquote yeah. diet guru in Australia, right. That, right. the Australian Institute of Sport. Um, so we sort of had it set up as a bit of a back-to-back presentation kind of forum. Yeah, and that her, was at our um, annual medical conference. Her last thing was that race walker study. I remember where she said. Yeah. Oh, well, I, uh, let's yeah. say I addressed that in my presentation. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think the study comes out smelling of roses. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that study, I mean, you probably know way more about it than I do. Actually, I've looked at it a couple of times, but it's, it's uh well, I mean, for, for me personally, context is everything. So 50K race walk is not exactly specific, although time-wise it gets pretty close to like some ultra events. And then uh, I think the biggest issue with it though is like my, generally speaking, if anyone ever comes to me with dietary advice for, for race day and they're three weeks out from their key competition, we're not altering their diet at all. Like regardless of whether they're high carb, <laughs> low carb or somewhere in between, it's like you just don't do that in any oh, sport bang. really bang, you just hit the nail on the head. But yeah, if you guys want to talk about that today, um, I'm happy to sort of kick off with that and then yeah, let's, just let's go wherever. So what, what are we, what's, new and, what's new and different in the world of ketogenic athletes? Uh, and what did Louise Burke have to say? And what, how did you refute her? I'm interested to hear that. Yeah. Well, basically, I mean, the big mistake that they made when they looked at the data was they assumed that a high rate of fat oxidation was equivalent to being keto adapted. And to be fair, the athletes in this study had the highest rates of fat oxidation ever recorded. They were over two Mm. grams a minute. But the problem is just because you can burn fat doesn't mean that you can uh, use the resulting ketones effectively. And there's a whole series of enzymes and transporters that are required to be upregulated before you can actually use the products of fatty oxidation in the mitochondria to generate ATP. And probably there's a couple of really good sources where we can determine whether you are keto adapted or not. The first thing is have a look at the ketones in the urine, because if you're producing ketones that you can't use, you're just going to pee them out. So, and we know this, when you go on a ketogenic diet, you test with the urine strips initially, you'll get a really high level of ketones. And that's probably one of the reasons you get a really rapid phase of weight loss initially, because you're literally peeing out energy. And so that's essentially waste energy. And we can actually measure your uric acid in the blood, which will give us an idea of how much urinary ketones you're losing. Because to enter the urine, you have to, the ketones will compete with uric acid. So if you're pushing more ketones into the urine, then you're putting less uric acid into the urine and your serum uric acid level will increase. And we know this whenever we study athletes or anybody for that matter on a ketogenic diet, we measure their serum uric acid, we'll see they get this initial increase. And that can persist, you know, for probably 12 weeks or more. So one study, they actually found that at 12 weeks after commencing a ketogenic diet, this serum uric acid levels were still falling. They still hadn't reached baseline. And you know yourself, Zach, if you speak to people on a ketogenic diet, they often don't hit their stride fully for four to six months after commencing it because you are actually a participant in the faster study. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the average duration of keto adaptation in that study was 20 months. Yeah. And the mm-hmm. shortest duration of keto adaptation in any of you, you guys as in the athletes in that study was nine months. So you guys were well and truly keto adapted before you did that. But the supernova study with Louise Burke is these guys were on it for three, three and a half weeks, absolutely insufficient for keto adaptation. 
And then they had a whole bunch of other issues. So you and I both know a ketogenic diet is nutrient dense, but they somehow managed to formulate a ketogenic diet. They were probably boiling their meat or something like this and draining off all the nutrients where in at least half a dozen different micronutrients, they were deficient compared to the high carb group on the supernova study. And then the sodium supplementation, we know that when you go low carb, you lower your insulin levels and that leads to renal salt wasting. And that means that you actually need to aggressively supplement with sodium. So in Finney's original studies, when they looked at sodium, they found that even giving the participants the option of salting their food to taste, that was insufficient to prevent deterioration in physical performance. You have to specifically and aggressively supplement with sodium when you commence a ketogenic diet. So what were these supernova athletes doing with their sodium? Well, they had between one and three electrolyte drinks every week. And that wasn't even recorded. It was probably one. And they were given diet colas and God knows what else. And they were told that they could put a, you know, some salt on their food to taste if they wanted. And as we know from Finney's research, salting to taste is insufficient. Then we come to potassium. And not only were the keto athletes in this study deficient in sodium, uh, potassium rather, it was actually less than the rec recommended daily allowance as per our dietary guidelines. And I don't know how that is even possible on a ketogenic diet unless you're you know, throwing away you know, a good portion of it. And we know there's this really neat study, which you're actually interested in the effect of electrolytes on body composition and performance. So in 1975, they did a TPN study where they were basically feeding people through a vein and that was all they were given. And then back before the days of these institutional review boards, they could do this kind of study. They said, well, what happens if we totally eliminate sodium from this feed we're giving them? What happens if we totally eliminate potassium or phosphate or nitrogen? And so predictably, you take out nitrogen, which is a base of protein, then that totally prevented any formation of bone tissue or muscle tissue, and all the excess energy was still stored, but it was stored as fat. But if you take away potassium, 100% of potassium will prevent 100% formation of bone and muscle. You take away sodium, it will reduce bone and muscle formation by about two thirds. You take away phosphate, it also has a profound impact on your bone and muscle formation. And we know this, if we have a look at the Women's Health Initiative study, they actually found that there's a strong statistically significant link between diets that are deficient in sodium and hip fracture. So, and so the supernova athletes, they were deficient relative to the other groups in a bunch of micronutrients in sodium, in potassium, there's no way this is a level playing field. We're, we're not comparing two diets here. We're comparing nutrient deficient athletes that are incompletely keto adapted. And when we actually have a look at the evidence that ketogenic diets can be beneficial in sport, well, geez, then all bets are off. So the study that you're involved in, Zach, they actually did biopsy of the muscle to have a look at glycogen stores. Because the main reason that carbohydrates have taken such a hold in the psyche of athletes is this fear that if you don't have enough carbohydrate, you're going to become deficient in glycogen. And this is the very premise on which the whole argument of carbs in athletes is premised on. And in this study, they actually biopsied muscle before exercise, immediately after exercise, and two hours again after that as you know you had three muscle biopsies i trust mm -hmm, and yeah. 
there was no difference in the high carb athletes and the low carb athletes in their glycogen levels. It is proven to be an absolute myth that you cannot maintain glycogen stores on a ketogenic diet. And then the logical extension of that is, well, if we can maintain glycogen stores, then we should be able to maintain power because there's always been this myth that, you know, ketogenic athletes lose power and you're, you're a power athlete, Sean, you know, this is your bread and butter. So then what do we look at? So we've got this uh, old study that was done in Italian gymnasts and there was two international level gymnasts in that. They put them on a ketogenic diet. What did they find? They lost body fat. They did not lose any power. There was an absolute barrier of physical testing there and their power was absolutely maintained. And then we've got a more recent study, the McSweeney study. And that actually looked at um, a, a number of elite level endurance athletes in a number of sports and they looked at their power you know, over a six second sprint before a hundred kilometer time trial. And then they did their average power over a three minute um, test at the end of a hundred kilometer time trial. And what they actually found is that the athletes who went ketogenic actually improved in their power. It wasn't just maintained, it was improved. And they actually, and their times are about four minutes better in terms of improvement compared to the high carb athletes after this uh, six week training period. So it doesn't matter whatever way we slice and dice it, there's, uh, you know, it's possible to be on a ketogenic diet and maintain your glycogen stores. And it's possible to not only maintain your power, but to improve your power. And if we factor in a body composition change where you're actually losing fat and maintaining muscle at the same time, then power to weight goes way up. Yeah, no, that, that all makes sense. And from the faster, the only thing I would say or add to that with the faster study that I'd be interested to see would be the muscle glycogen, uh, how the, what happens with all of that in the context of like an actual training system, training block for like, say an endurance athlete training for like a hundred kilometer race or something like that. And the reason being is it doesn't surprise me too much that we didn't see a big dip in muscle glycogen in the high fat cohort for the faster study, because the big training stimulus was a three hour treadmill session at 65% VO2 max, which is low enough where I would imagine if someone is actually paying attention to the nutrition and focusing on like a, I think we were required to stay at around 10% carbohydrate intake, uh, like as close to that as possible. And, um, with that framework and, and training, I would imagine that your fat oxidation rates would increase to the point where 65% VO2 max is just going to hardly touch your muscle glycogen in the first place. Yeah. So, well, even like in that faster study though, when you go up to so race pace for an elite marathon runner is probably at about 77, 80% VO2 max, right? So in the faster study, when they looked at 80% VO2 max and fat oxidation rate, these guys are still burning fat a gram a minute. Mm -hmm. So their glycogen, even when you increase the intensity, this, uh, you know, and this compares to less than 0.2 grams a minute in the high carb athlete that absolutely demolishes it. So at race pace intensity, we still see this glycogen sparing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, I'd be curious what you think about this too, because I think with a marathon where it gets a little tricky is because I mean, it's like anything context is like always the big driver as to whether anything's going to work or not work. But like you get some of the elite marathoners and I think they can maybe push up a little higher on their VO percent of their VO two max, just because their, their training specificity is so unique. And then 
it's, it's just this weird combination of things too. The better you get, the sooner you finish from a time standpoint as well. So like a, like a three hour marathon, or it's almost a different event compared to the, like the fastest in the world who are running like a two, almost a two flat. Yeah. And, uh, then I think the biggest issue with the marathon specifically, and this would be outside the framework of ultra marathon is certainly at any distance that most people are going to consider ultra marathon would be like the, uh, the utilization, the oxygen utilization, burning fat versus burning carbohydrate. So like marathon intensity is kind of like, there's a premium on, on like oxygen. Usage well, let, let's talk about efficiency for a moment. Cause sure. that was one of the big findings. That was how the supernova study was tabled They're saying there's impaired exercise efficiency. Now I take real issue with this because the one paper that they actually used to support this finding was from 1920. I went back and I had a look at that original paper in 1920 that proved impaired exercise efficiency in fat adapted people. And guess how long this study was in this 1920s paper? Three bloody weeks. <laughs> Seriously, you can't make this up. So this is that there's a theoretical analysis to support it. And this 1920 paper with experimental evidence that supports this finding of impaired exercise efficiency. What it shows is that if you're incompletely keto adapted for a period of three weeks, you are less efficient. Correct. Mm -hmm. Then what about the Finney study? So they had a bunch of people who went on a ketogenic diet and they lost a bunch of weight. So they measured their exercise efficiency in terms of how much oxygen they were using um, per unit exercise on the treadmill before the study started. Then they lost a bunch of weight and they put them back on the treadmill. So you're thinking, hang on, hang on. This isn't comparing apples to apples here because we've got these skinnier people. Mm -hmm. So then they gave them a weighted backpack, weighted backpack. So, and I don't know, but for my money, I think carrying anything on your back is, it just feels a bit awkward. And what they actually found that when they were wearing a weighted backpack to bring them back to their equivalent weight and make note, there was no exercise stimulus over the six week period of the study that just literally lost weight without any specific exercise their exercise efficiency significantly improved even while wearing a weighted backpack. So all the, the best evidence we have about exercise efficiencies and stuff like that, if anything, it shows that it's likely to be better on a ketogenic diet. And the simple fact is that on one hand, you've got these scientists, low carb advocates saying, well, ketogenic diets impair exercise efficiency, you know, because the, you know, the fat oxidation is worse. And we know that training in and of itself improves exercise efficiency. And that is associated with increased fat oxidation. It's an absolute non sequitur. You cannot explain it. If you accept, if you believe that fat oxidation impairs exercise efficiency, then how does exercise itself and regular training improve exercise efficiency? It absolutely makes no sense. Yeah, Paul, I want to just, just one other thing that I, that I became aware of, and I'm not sure you may be, that they've now got ultrasounds that can assess muscle glycogen uh, that apparently are very close to biopsy with a, with a number of different confirmatory studies that show that. So that may be a nice way to, you know, quickly do some of these studies and get more. Well, I'll tell you what, that is, I didn't know about that. And that is Absolutely fantastic because funnily enough, after our little, um, you know, quasi presentations together, uh, Louise, Louise and I have actually been speaking and uh, we're actually planning to uh, do a study together where we're actually measuring glycogen stores 
So her perspective is that the results of the faster study cannot be true because they, they, they just literally cannot be true. And I think what better way of uh, seeing uh, who's right rather than doing the study ourselves. And if what you're saying, then it'll be a hell of a lot easier to recruit people because I'll be honest, Zach, I'm not as brave as you are. I'm not <laughs> signing up for three muscle biopsies. Yeah. <laughs> That was probably the worst part of the faster study. I remember I oh, really? a run the next morning and it was like, it was like a nail jammed in your leg. Every step you took, it was kind of weird, but you know, the interesting thing that takeaway I had from the faster study too. And I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but uh, it was that after the, after the, the faster study was done, when I flew back home, you know, I took it easy for a few days because of the muscle biopsy, more or less. I didn't try to do anything like super hard or difficult. And then by the time I got around to feeling good enough to do any type of intense session, it had probably been four or five days. And I'd stuck to a fairly strict ketogenic diet. And I did a like a 12 by 400 meter workout without bringing back any carbohydrates for that. And it went great. I mean, I hit splits that I've always hit, didn't feel any worse or anything like that. So like my thought had been after that was that there's no issue with muscle glycogen restocking to do some of these like kind of gray area intensity workouts mm. where you can get the volume high enough, but the intensity is also high enough that like you're dipping into muscle glycogen, but it's not such a taxing on your, your muscle that you have to like stop after a couple reps. So you kind of get in this weird area where you could potentially deplete your muscle glycogen in a workout or get close to it. And, uh, so I always thought it was like a timing thing. And, uh, but yeah, it's interesting. I guess the, the question then is what is the timing or is it any different? So some of those glycogen studies would be really cool to see, especially I think if they're including like lactic threshold type work where that's even a better example, probably than 400 meter repeats because lactic threshold intensity, like I could go out and do that yeah. probably like three, four times a week when I'm pretty fit. And then it's like, is there a timing situation with that intensity versus... Uh... And this is super easy to test because we can just do that finger prick. And I mean, you go to any physiology lab or any elite athlete center and you've mm -hmm. got your sport physiologist there, you know, with their, their finger pricks, you know, yeah. draining blood off all the athletes. I mean, that, you know, what we call the OBLA or the onset of blood lactate accumulation. I mean, that's a, a critical point in the aerobic to anaerobic transition so and that's easily measurable i mean we just need to do the research yeah yeah or i just need to get myself in a lab and chat some <laughs> oh you can no you can have these handhold devices to measure lactate just a finger prick that's that's super easy sure i need to build my own lab or order order that and <laughs> get the home lab going again but then uh i guess there's a couple of other things that came out of the supernova study one that particularly galled me was this headline that came out that said ketogenic diets are bad for your bone health. And yeah. mm -hmm. this is just bollocks. I mean, it could not be more wrong in, you know, any number of ways. So first of all, let's talk about it. So, I mean, sure. We'll talk about, we won't talk about how the paper was published and what level of journal it ended up in and all of this kind of stuff. But the simple fact is we know that sodium deficiency leads to impaired bone health these athletes were sodium deficient. So how's that a fair comparator? Number two, these athletes were incompletely keto adapted. And the authors of the study said that uh, we 
hypothesized that uh, because of the glycogen depletion, that led to an increased inflammatory stimulus, perhaps through interleukin-6, and this led to a uh, catabolic stress on the bones. Well, as we know, if you are completely keto adapted, you don't have glycogen depletion. So that then becomes a null and void argument. And then there's more important fish to fry with regards to what we do know actually improves bone health. So rather than this study, which is fundamental, you know, so many methodological flaws with it, you just have to really throw it away. But we know that for athletes, and I mean, you guys have talked about this before, I believe, that what used to be called the female athlete triad, we now call you know, relative energy deficiency in sport, is a problem where if you have insufficient circulating energy available, then your body's baseline physiological functions like maintaining bone health are impaired. So if you don't have enough available energy, your body will sort of let certain things slide. And we make the assumption, we say, oh, you know, traditionally in sports medicine, we say, oh, well, you've got this relative energy or red S, um, we need to push more energy into you. But we need to have a look at the source of energy because if you have carbohydrates coming in, that releases insulin and that has the effect of storing energy. And while you might be in positive energy balance as far as what's coming in, you don't have energy availability. And this was elegantly shown in one study where they found, they measured people's resting energy metabolism. And they found the difference in people on a high carb diet and a low carb diet was about 300 kilocalories a day. And that's equivalent to the energy you would expend cycling for an hour at moderate intensity. So that, that's not an insignificant amount of energy. So even though that was basically having the same, same energies, you know, coming in, one group had a lot more energy availability and that group would be maintaining their bone health far, far more than the group that was basically having this restricted energy. So, and this is super important because we measure in terms of athlete bone health, uh, you know, at, at our institutes, our top institutes, we measure resting energy metabolism. And when that goes too low, we know these athletes are at risk of stress fracture. So how do we increase resting energy metabolism? Put them on a ketogenic diet. And then we come to protein. And this is one I know that you guys are both a big fan of protein. And we have a look at this study that was done in 2002. I think it was by Dawson and Hughes. And they actually did a randomized controlled trial looking at what happened when you supplemented with vitamin D and calcium citrate. And then they did something really clever. They stratified the groups into their tertiaries of protein intake into low, moderate, and high. And over three years, they had a population, the study population was males and females over the age of 65. So postmenopausal females, old men. And they assessed their bone mineral density with DEXA scanning, gold standard, over three years. And they found that in the group with the lowest protein intake, who were supplemented with vitamin D and calcium, their bone mineral density continued to decline. But in the group with the highest protein intake, they actually had reversal. They had increase in bone mineral density. So this demonstrates that just through nutritional intervention alone, it is possible to reverse osteopenia and osteoporosis without any pharmacological agents, without bisphosphonates, without these other, these other things going on. And this makes perfect sense because 40% of the dry weight of bone is protein. So if you think about bone, bone is basically a, a scaffold of protein, which has got 
you know, calcium and phosphate and minerals embedded within it. So if you don't add enough protein in, you've got no chance of rebuilding bone. So this whole finding of the supernova study that ketogenic diets are bad for bones, it's, it's bollocks. One, we know ketogenic diets, they restore energy availability, that is good for bone health. And they tend to be higher in protein, which is again, also good for bone health. It's a, you know, it's a nothing. Yeah, I think that's, uh, it was really interesting because when that New York Times article came out that was looking at that, uh, I couldn't remember until you just mentioned it that that was a supernova study that we're using. But yeah, I remember the, there, I was following a thread on Twitter, I think, where they were talking about the bone, the bone density decreasing with the ketogenic diet. And I thought that was kind of curious because I believe in the faster study when we, I mean, we use DEXA scan. So it was like a higher level of looking at bone density than what they used in the supernova. I think supernova, they weren't looking at DEXA, if I remember correctly. No, um, they were look, well, they were looking at um, markers of bone turnover, right. mm -hmm. which yeah. is, I think it, in some regards, it can be useful. In the short term, perhaps. But, but in a study that's, you know, deficient in sodium, right. you know, incompletely keto-adapted, deficient in glycogen, short duration, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there's no amount. You could do DEXA scanning. You could do whatever you wanted in that study. It had other methodological limitations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think in the FASTER study, the high-fat cohort actually had, like, better bone density than the high carb cohort did too. So I wasn't, you know, I didn't read that and think like I need to make any massive interventions to protect my, my, my bone density. Yeah. And actually, I think I mean, I asked Volok about it as well. And he had said that they've done, they've looked at that a few different times in, a, in like different populations, age populations, and it hasn't been an issue, but I didn't connect the dots that that would have been a sodium potassium deficiency thing that would be causing that, but that's interesting. Oh, well, I mean, that can absolutely contribute. I mean, so the Women's Health Initiative, as you know, is a big study, and that was a, a again, there's so very few statistically significant findings came out of that. I'm surprised they're not being shouted from the rooftops. Deficient sodium intake increases your risk of hip fracture. Mm. Yeah, you know, you can go down so many rabbit holes with that too, because like we, I mean, we advocated for low sodium diets essentially for decades, and you mm -hmm. wonder how much of that plays into the into some of some of this the elderly bone density issues as much as anything else. Well, if you have a look at this 1975 TPN feeding study, um, it's got to be important. If you have a look at the Women's Health Initiative study, it's got to be important. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, uh, it seems like the, the more you dig in, the more you find like that uh, trying to do anything like really outside the realm of, uh, of what was done maybe 50, 60 years ago is kind of playing with fire a little bit. Yeah. And I, I guess uh, one other thing, uh, just in terms of nutrition, why we, we talked about body composition briefly, and you can probably add a heck of a lot to this too, Sean, is what happens when we push in protein in excess of RDA. So as people know, the RDA for protein is about 0.8 grams per kilogram, which is ludicrously low because this was actually developed based on the understanding that protein was a, uh, a substrate for structural tissues, but not with an understanding that protein is also involved in enzymes and all these other things that are important to our physiology. So if you ignore all of that and you just say, well, we only look at protein as a building block for structures, 
uh, for mechanical structures, then obviously you're going to end up with a, a recommended level that's probably lower than ideal. And they've done a number of studies where they've actually looked at for, you know, protein overfeeding. And the interesting thing is that for the most part, several of these studies have found that when you deliberately overfeed with protein, the excess energy does not get stored as adipose tissue. And even when people are having more than double the RDA for protein intake, when you increase it even further, you can increase lean tissue, as in muscle, without any change in training. So we, we still have to get over our fear, um, and I say we being public health and uh, general public, of excess protein consumption, because it's really not borne out by the research. Yeah, we've had, uh, just so you know, we've had guys like Jose Antonio who's done some of the protein overfeeding studies on the show. And I mean, that's exactly what they find. I mean, there's like almost no ceiling that they found that there were there where there were detrimental issues with, with protein. And it's very physiologically hard to convert protein to fat tissue. It's not impossible, but it's a very metabolically challenging thing to do. And I think one of the things when we talk about studies like, uh, we talk about glycogen restoration, I know there's good animal data showing that higher protein diets definitely help, certainly with an overnight restoration of liver glycogen and likely with muscle glycogen as well, I imagine. So that's- Yeah, well, this is one important thing too, talking about glycogen restoration and these kind of things, is a, a, one of the big problems in ketogenic athletes is that they don't have sufficient protein intake and a deficient protein intake will actually lead to an excess level of ketones. So in my athletes now, I actually discourage them from chasing a very, very high level of ketones because that usually reflects oxaloacetate depletion. So oxaloacetate is uh, necessary for the functioning of the Krebs cycle. And if you have a very low blood sugar level, then your body through gluconeogenesis will actually make more blood sugar to compensate, but it will use oxaloacetate to do that. So your oxaloacetate will get depleted and that then will basically limit the ability of your Krebs cycle to function. So all of these ketones that you're producing, um, they have trouble then ultimately entering the Krebs cycle, so they accumulate. So I personally believe that extremely high levels of ketones, which you usually only get on very high fat and you know, relatively low protein diets, is a reflection of oxaloacetate depletion. And we know that there's several amino acids that can both directly and indirectly lead to repletion of your oxaloacetate levels. And I think that's one of the big advantages of pushing in protein if you're on a ketogenic diet. It means that you don't end up with that energy block. Yeah, I think that's something Zach and I, you know, we, we kind of came to this conclusion several years, you know, a couple of years ago into this, as we've talked to more and more folks about, you know, a ketogenic diet, low protein versus a ketogenic diet, adequate protein. And I would, you know, I would err, you know, would err, but I would agree with guys like Stu Phillips and that those guys are more closer to, you know, two, you know, two grams per kilo rather than this 0.8, which is just, you know, complete nonsense in my view. I mean, it's- I would actually, I would go further than two, two yeah. grams a kilo too, Sean. If we have a look at the data, so there was one study, they, I think they had an intake of 1.8 grams a day and they increased them to 3.2. And they looked at what happened to their adipose mass and their lean tissue, 
no change in adipose mass, they still had a further increase in their lean tissue. So I think even two grams a kilogram a day is insufficient for optimal muscle building. Yeah, I'm, I'm not even talking about muscle building. I'm talking about just maintenance for a, for a sedentary person. You know, it's kind of, yeah. you know, that, that, you know, and then I get the muscle building, you don't know where the top end is. Well, maybe. the thing is, this muscle building thing, though, is, is, not, is also for sedentary people because remember these studies, they didn't change their training. They didn't change their training regimens. So effectively, it's the muscle increases um, for your baseline level of activity. So, and that is also what we see in sedentary people. So I have a number of patients, we do DEXA scans on now. Um, usually females, they come in and they're saying, I'm not losing weight. I'm saying, how are your clothes? It's like, sure, I had to go out and buy three new sets of clothes in the last six months, um, but I'm not losing weight. And it's like, well, your bone density is increasing and your muscle mass is increasing. And, you know, we sort of focus on the non-scale victories, but the only way of really um, giving people that concrete feedback is with body composition DEXA scanning. Yeah, that, 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 you know, again, uh, when we look at health markers, I mean, it's pretty clear that lean muscle mass and, you know, sort, sort of uh, looking at strength uh, leads to improved outcomes. It's about every measure, including longevity. However, as you are, I'm sure, painfully aware, there is a huge number of people that are scared to death of protein uh, because of, you know, mTOR is going to gonna make us get cancer and die early. Would, have yeah. you much thought to that? I know we've had other folks on here that have, that have put their sort of thoughts on that. And I, I clearly think it's... it's, it's well, uh, I mean, the thing is, if, if you're really worried about mTOR, then you should be worried about carbohydrates and insulin. I mean, that, that, that's what it comes down to. What, what, so we worry... Leucine is a remarkable amino acid, um, and without getting too much into that. But, and we worry about that because that can stimulate mTOR. Um, insulin will stimulate it more. So a, a box of Krispy Kremes is going to be far worse for you than a steak in terms of mTOR activity. And mTOR is not just isolated. You know, we've got to ask about mTOR where. So mTOR is in different tissues of the body, and it has differential activations as well. So it's not just a matter of being like a light switch. You, you turn one, you, one on, you turn them all on. And... I'm yet to see any evidence that will demonstrate that protein intake is worse in cancer patients. So that it might be out there, but I haven't seen that research. Yeah, we had, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with a guy named Keith Barr, we talked about that, the differential stimulation. And, you know, if, particularly if you're exercising and, you know, you drive that muscle protein synthesis via, you know, leucine activation of mTOR to some degree, arginine a little bit. And that, that, you know, that has a positive effect when it comes to muscle context. Now, again, the, the insulin is a huge stimulator, and then so is excess caloric intake in general. Those, seems, those things seem to drive that. And, you know, we know we have this society where we snack every 15 minutes, and it's, it's almost invariably these high-carbohydrate snacks, and, and that's yeah. probably the bigger risk. But they don't seem to talk about that insulin driving it well that's the thing reason. i mean this is what we're debating the nuances of differential tissue activation of mTOR and the elephants in the room it's like stop eating the carbs stop spiking your insulin and we absolutely know that insulin and obesity are causally related with some cancers hey folks i have some exciting news to share hpo podcast wants to reward some of our regular listeners and supporters 
So we have partnered up with some companies to offer a monthly raffle for all our Patreon and PayPal donors. It's simple. Donate as little as one US dollar per month to automatically enter. For every dollar you donate will qualify you for a raffle ticket. At the end of the month, the raffle will be drawn and winners announced. Ultra Footwear is going to be giving away a free pair of shoes for our US listeners. Ultra Footwear makes shoes that are shaped like feet, have balanced cushioning, and build their shoes specifically to the anatomy of male and female feet. They call it their fit for her system. So check them out at ultrarunning.com. That's ultra with an A, running.com. S Fuels provides a series of low carb, high fat endurance and lifestyle products that are designed with the help from World Ironman Age Group Champion, Dr. Dan Plews, six time Hawaii Ironman triathlete, Dave Scott, and now myself. You can check out some of their educational material at sfuelsgolonger.com and also my collaboration with S Fuels at sfuelsgolonger.com forward slash Zach. Sean and Zach will also be raffling off a free 20-minute consult each with minimum two weeks notice. So head over to paypal.me forward slash HPOPod or patreon.com forward slash HPOPodcast to support the show. I want to shift gears and talk about something you talked about earlier, Paul, um, electrolytes, because that does continue to be a challenge for a lot of people, uh, you know, with ketogenic carnivore diets, uh, they, they, they sometimes, uh, you know, you know, the, outside of the transition symptoms where we see people that become dehydrated, they have, uh, some people will have heart palpitations. I've seen some people where they talk about the, the fact that some people develop atrial fibrillation. Um, and then cramping, which is a which is kind of a bane, and most people don't realize that cramping is very common as people get older. I think it affects something like fifty to sixty percent of the you know the, the elder, older population over forty fifty years of age, and so that may just be normal aging. But uh, and I, well, I mean, I don't want to say normal aging. It's just aging is not necessarily normal. We just have a lot That's of that's a, a reflection of right. modern lifestyle. Right, exactly. And and do you have you found a ratio? Is there some magic ratio that seems to keep because, you know, if you're pounding a bunch of sodium, then the question is, how is this affecting my potassium? Where does magnesium play a role in there? What about calcium? So how do we, how do we sort out an electrolyte? So I'll tell you a story, and I'm sure you'll relate to it. So I was an intern, you know, a little bit obsessive, and we were charting fluids. And so we've got these bags of sodium or Hartman's, whatever, and we've got to add in a bit of magnesium and a bit of potassium. And I was trying to calculate the insensible losses, how much was coming out through their feces, you know, their sweat, what have you. And I used to bust my brain on it. And one of the senior doctors looked at me one day and he goes, you know, Paul, even the dumbest kidney is smarter than the smartest intern. And for the most part, that's true. If your kidneys are functioning, then if you just whack it all in the system, your kidneys will sort it out for you. They'll, they'll keep what they need. They'll get rid of what they don't need. So I think in part, we can make it, we can get a bit too fancy with it sometimes. But I certainly think, um, you know, deficiencies are more common than we appreciate. Um, and there's a lot of arguments with uh, magnesium. There was one study um, looking at magnesium in athletes, and they found that 42% of athletes were magnesium deficient. 
And the problem is that the standard blood test we do for magnesium, serum magnesium, or even the fancier red cell magnesium is totally unreliable. We need to actually do magnesium retention studies, which are really laborious and involved, and we, they're just totally impractical in the real world. But when we do those studies, we find that athletes are you know, quite often magnesium deficient. And then we have this uh, question about what formulation of magnesium is best. If we have it chelated with a, a joint to an amino acid, that's probably better digested. But you can only get relatively small quantities of magnesium versus something like a magnesium citrate um, or a magnesium oxide. So in terms of magnesium in particular, I will usually settle on a magnesium citrate. Magnesium oxide just causes too much diarrhea, so that's a stay away from that one. So magnesium citrate, you know, three to 600 milligrams a day is reasonable to start with. And if people get gastrointestinal effects from that, then I'll probably put them on one that's chelated with an amino acid, like a three and eight or a magnesium aspartate or something like that. But I'm not really concerned about overdoing magnesium because if we put a little bit too much in the kidneys, we'll correct it. Potassium is a bit of a different story, as you know, because if you overcook that one, you can get heart arrhythmias and you can cause, you know, heart attacks and uh, that can be a bit of a problem. So in Australia, you cannot buy potassium supplement at all. It's got to come with the doctor's prescription. I think that's a different state um, to where you guys are. Um, but that, that's for the reason that it's possible to, you know, top yourself if you have too much. Um, the beautiful thing is that if you have optimal magnesium levels, that then leads to improved potassium absorption. And there are products on the market that are like um, salts that actually are a mix of both sodium and potassium in them. So in Australia, there's a brand called Light Salt, L-I-T-E. So, you know, some athletes I know will be supplementing with that. But the combination of sodium, potassium and magnesium, I think, uh, you know, at least in some ratios, I I'm not too fussed about the ratios as long as you've got functioning kidneys your kidneys will take care of the rest but i certainly think that some supplementation is beneficial for physical performance especially in endurance athletes yeah paul you can you can actually get like uh that like you mentioned that light salt you can actually get stuff that's even a step further and it's i think sodium free and just basically just potassium do you think uh is something like that just like a recipe for disaster if you can overdo potassium yes I think it is actually. I think because uh, the trouble with athletes, they're not always, uh, they think a little bit's good, more is better. Right, yeah. Um, also, half the shaker goes on. <laughs> I, I would be concerned um, mm -hmm. that people could potentially overdo potassium. And given that we know that you can't, it's hard to overdo magnesium and magnesium leads to improved potassium absorptions, mm -hmm. um, I'm certainly much more comfortable for my athletes to, you know, push the magnesium side of things. And if you're having a well-balanced diet and not boiling your meat and draining it off, which is probably what they're doing in the supernova study, if you're having, you know, the juices and things like that, you're probably getting enough potassium in your diet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And isn't even so sodium even is the, the first kind of major one where you're, you're going to lose way more magnesium and potassium, like in your sweat and, and urine if you're low on sodium in the first place. So that seems like that's the first one that you check the box for and then go from there. Yeah. And a lot of people, they sort of want to they come and say, what's my sodium level like? And unfortunately, the level of sodium in your blood actually doesn't always correlate with the level in your total body. So in some conditions, such as what we call exercise-associated hyponatremia, 
which usually comes on because you overhydrate, um, then if we see it's low in your blood, then, then we know we're, we've got a bit of a crisis on our hands and we need to address that. But not, it doesn't always correlate with the level in your blood. And given the safety of sodium, I mean, if you overcook sodium a bit, you'll just get thirsty. If your kidneys are working and you have the capacity to drink, I think it's hard to overdo sodium. Yeah, I, I think that uh, that's another distinction is, you know, from athletes to the regular person, you know, there's, there's uh, a little bit difference there. And it, it is interesting that most people don't realize that meat has quite a bit of potassium in it. That's just, yeah. uh, you know. Well, I see. And that's probably the same as you. I actually, for my athletes, I recommend a pre-workout would be something like a hamburger patty with a 50-50 mix of standard salt and light salt. So you're getting lots of sodium, a bit of potassium, and you're getting all these readily digestible amino acids, which we know will actually support your oxaloacetate stores and stabilize your blood sugar levels during exercise. So if you have something like that in an hour before exercise, um, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, out of the stomach, it's in the intestines, it's being well digested, that kind of, as a pre-workout, you know, a lot of people kick on really, really well. It's interesting. We had a guest on uh, last week. Uh, she's the uh, 400 meter world champion over 40 and her pre-workout is a ribeye steak a little over an hour before she competes. And she has been able to, you know, she says she's performing now better at 44 than she was as a college athlete, you know, doing this on a, on a you know, basically a mostly meat based. Now she's not hundred <laughs> percent carnivorous, but that is her literally, literally that is what she does prior to training. And she's the world record. World That's champion. golden. Yeah. So you've got some support for that, for that pre-workout. Yeah. Yeah. Cynthia was interesting. She, yeah, she was saying like, cause I asked her, I was curious. Cause a lot of times when you're talking to kind of like the carnivore folks or the keto folks, they're doing like, you know, fewer meals and bigger meals. And I just envision like the standard athlete going to the track for a workout, you know, having their granola bar or banana or whatever it is like on their way there, like within an hour of their, their activity. And I thought it would maybe be a stretch if you're following a carnivore diet to be chomping on a piece of steak when you're like 30 minutes from a workout or something like that. But yeah, she said, probably no, I'll probably go an hour. Yeah. <laughs> she said that it wasn't a big deal. I can't, she, I, you, maybe you remember Sean, she even said there was a, a good reason to do it from a lactic acid standpoint or something like that. But um, I, I will say when I have played around with like uh, doing more closer to carnivore and the, the, brief phases I've done kind of a more strict bout of it. I do feel like I can eat like, you know, upwards to about a pound of beef and then pretty much go out for now. I'm not doing 400 meter workouts by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, I can go out for a run and not feel like I'm like got a bunch of food in my stomach, which isn't the case when, when you're bringing back some of like the other foods, the plant foods tend to, I feel like take a little longer to get through my stomach and feel comfortable enough to go and do any type of workout at all. Well, one thing that can catch people out is because people get bored of just drinking plain water. So they have sparkling or mineral waters, uh, but, uh, carbonated beverages. Mm -hmm. And we know the carbonated beverages can actually relax what we call the lower esophageal sphincter, which is basically the, the ring muscle around the bottom of your food pipe that keeps the acid in the stomach and out of the food pipe. Mm. And uh, if you're having a sparkling water, a fizzy water right before exercise, that can lead to regurgitation, a bit of reflux. Huh. So it's, uh, I mean, for me, and I, I've found this personally, if I jump on the tennis court straight after a big <clears> meal, which I often do, I'm not, I just muck around. Um, if I've, the sparkling water is what will give me a bit of, oh, I'm probably a bit too soon. 
But if I just have plain water, then all is good. Now, uh, just on female athletes, so just, uh, this is a little bit of a, uh, a random point. But one thing that we don't talk about enough is hormonal contraception. And this is what I'm doing with my elite athletes now. It's very common for female athletes to be on the combined oral contraceptive pill. Um, usually for period control because they can time it around their events and their training and what have you and they actually think that's a, not a bad thing. The problem is, is that estrogen, when you take it orally, it actually gets metabolized in a way that impairs your insulin-like growth factor one. It's basically the, the downstream effect of growth hormone. So we know that uh, estrogen orally increases insulin resistance, increases weight, and impairs your insulin-like growth factor, so it impairs your muscle building. However, if you take estrogen in another route, say transdermally or something like that, so it's not metabolized by the liver, it doesn't have that hepatic metabolism, then it doesn't have this impact. So it's certainly uh, worth any female athletes going out there if they're, um, if they're on any form of estrogen therapy, and as you know, Sean, that they shouldn't be on estrogen in isolation if they've still got a uterus for a bunch of other reasons. But if they're on any form of estrogen therapy, they may want to speak to their doctor about whether there's another route that they can take it that doesn't have this impact on their insulin sensitivity and their growth hormone. Yeah, those are, I think those are very good points, Paul. What, um, I'm just trying to think if there's anything new that I know that you, you sort of see a lot of people I see that you are their doctor for a carnivore diet. Um, are you finding, oh, that's crazy talk. <laughs> I know it is, but I mean, are you finding any, uh, how, how has been your experience with, with them as far as uh, helping with helping or not helping with certain conditions? Is it something that you think? Look, it's just, I don't need to tell you the benefits that some people <laughs> see on a carnivore diet, so, but let me re relate. I had a conversation not so long ago with a, a guy I really like, he's a gastroenterologist and he started managing his patients with the carnivore diet. And uh, we have these people, there's a marker of uh, intestinal inflammation called fecal calprotectin. And some people with good going disease, bad going disease, it'll be over a thousand. And I usually say to my patients, well, I wanna get it down to single figures. I wanna get it under 10. Um, and normally anything under 50 is considered normal, but I, 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 I want it well, well, well under normal. And so I was chatting to this gastroenterologist who was sharing a patient, and I think his uh, fecal calprotectin went down from about 1,000 down to about 50. And, uh, and I was ringing him up and I said, look, just not happy. And he said to you guys, well, look, you know, as far as we're concerned and the, the gastroenterology profession in general, this is complete remission. This is absolutely fantastic. Um, there is no problems going on. He goes, see, what you're doing is you're striving for perfection. And he says, we just don't do that. Um, and you know, he obviously does, but the, his profession in general doesn't. And I think that's what practicing with these, uh, eliminating some of these toxic plant lectins and stuff has actually allowed us to do. We've, we've raised the bar of medicine. We're no longer just about symptom control and allowing people to get through their life. We're about shooting for optimum. We're about shooting for perfection. And in actual fact, in this, uh, this guy, he was on one medication still called mesalazine, which is otherwise known as 5-ASA, which is similar molecularly to aspirin. And as it turned out, it was this drug that he was 
still taking to treat his intestinal inflammation, which was causing intestinal inflammation, because we know that these, uh, these anti-inflammatory-like medications do cause it. And when we went looking up the literature, we see 5-ASA can cause colitis and can cause all of this, et cetera, et cetera. So when we weaned him off slowly, um, he still remained on a, a carnivore-style diet, um, took the drug and his fecal colprotectin then went back down to single figures. So, you know, it's a fantastic win. But uh, that, that's, that's what we're seeing the carnivore diet does. It, it changes the parameters of medicine. It means we actually heal people and not just manage people. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know if you're aware that, uh, you know, I'm sure you know David Ludwig uh, out of Harvard. So we have a large carnivore study that's about to kick off. So that'll be a sort of a bit of a win for uh, getting this into the research uh, literature. And, uh, and then hopefully we get some uh, interventional so he's after, Brilliant. yeah, because we've got, uh, you know, like I said, I think there's plenty of people just willing to write, do some case write-ups, you know, because I know uh, there's some people that are out there working on some case reports right now. So these things are obviously necessary steps to get it accepted by, you know, in the, in the academic community. It doesn't need to be, we don't need that for us to try it ourselves because it's, you know, it's yeah. just one of those things. I mean, that's gold. So it was actually Ludwig's study that I referenced before about the 300 kilocalories a day difference between right. the two diets. Sure. I mean, yep. that guy's done some fantastic research. Yep. So he is, uh, I think it just got through IRB at Harvard. And so I think we're being data collection here. At Harvard. Yeah. <laughs> Let me guess, is there an epidemiologist there who's crying in a corner? Right, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if Walter Willett and those guys will be uh <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure uh what's his name? Neil Bernard is is sharpening his knives to go petition the <laughs> FTC to get it to, to get it uh, not published. Oh god. I don't know. But, so. but there is probably two things, uh two interesting points that uh would probably be worth talking about. One is what happens to addictive eating behaviors on carnivore. And the other one is uh, talking about oxidation of oils. So I don't know if you want to kick off with one of those. Yeah, let's talk about the, the, the oils one, because I think, I, I think the eating behavior is, is interesting. And I see, see you know, definite advantages to the diet. But I mean, because that's a, that's a question that I have. And I, I've looked a little, you know, a little bit into the research uh, and seeing that those oxidative, oxidized oils do seem to hang around and be problematic and I don't know what you've dug up on that. Yeah, so, so here's the thing. Is for a long time, I used to believe that omega-6 fats were inherent, inherently inflammatory. And now I don't. Because if we actually look, there's studies of supplementing with arachidonic acid and this kind of thing that actually shows that it actually enhances muscle bulk and muscle strength. And they're actually, they don't appear to be negative in the right situation. And the right situation is a low inflammatory environment. So the problem with omega-6s, or the problem with our old thinking was that we thought you ingest this omega-6 fat and then it gets turned into arachidonic acid. And then that arachidonic acid can be turned into these inflammatory products um, downstream. But the key thing is to understand is that arachidonic acid is not converted into these inflammatory products in the absence of an inflammatory stimulus. So if you're in a low inflammatory state, your arachidonic acid is just sitting there and it can produce good things, but it won't produce these bad things. And in actual fact, when we put people, there's one study I know of that actually looked at arachidonic acid levels on a low carb diet, which we know is a low inflammation diet. And they actually found that arachidonic acid levels increased. And that fully supports this view that 
there's less conversion of arachidonic acid into these negative products. And the reason that all these vegetable and seed oils are associated with bad health is not in essence because they're high in omega-6, it's because they're high in oxidized products. So when you have any fat, for it to be liquid, it has to have double bonds between carbons. The more double bonds, the more liquid it is. So basically the liquidity or solidity of a fat is, a, is proportional and a good surrogate marker for how saturated or unsaturated it is. And any fat that has these double bonds between carbons is prone to oxidation. And that can be omega-3 fats just as much as omega-6 fats. And this is critical to understand because people supplementing with fish oil, they're not necessarily doing themselves a service. And they did a study a couple of years back in Australia. So went around to two different pharmacies in Sydney, local here, and bought all the available uh, fish oil supplements that didn't have additives to them and measured their oxidation state. And every single one of them had a, uh, was oxidized. And they measured it called something called TOTOX or total oxidation. And the range was between 10, which I consider still too high, and 133. So fish oil is not safe. So the, the premise is that if you want to avoid oxidized fats, then you better get it from food. Because the definition of oxidized fats in food is rancidity. If you are not going to eat something that's rancid, then you're probably not going to be ingesting high levels of oxidized fats. So if you want your omega-3s, have some salmon that's not rotten. Have some grass-fed beef that's, you know, that's fresh. So, and you'll also get your omega-6s this way as well. And the problem is that when we ingest, say, if we have a vegetable or seed oil, this just forms the largest part of oils in our diet. And that's why we get most of these oxidized products. They get absorbed through our chylomicrons. They attack the liver. So we've got good evidence in mice where they've done electron microscopy and they can actually see scarring and damage of liver cells after their ingestion of oxidized products. We know these oxidized products can be incorporated into LDL particles which then becomes atherogenic and has the capacity to cause heart disease and uh, issues with that. And we also know that these oils are oxidized incredibly quickly. So even within a matter of hours, there was one paper I read on walnut oil, and I think it was tested six hours after harvest. It already had significant amounts of oxidation. So even if you're buying, you know, single press extra virgin olive oil that's kept in a cool cupboard that's in a brown jar, it's not going to be enough it's still going to be oxidized. And olive oil is something that surprises a lot of people. Remember we said it's oil is liquid because it's got a double bond. Well, 70% of olive oils oleic acid or omega nine, which has a single double bond. And that double bond is still prone to oxidation. So even olive oil doesn't get a pass. So if you want to uh, work out what the safest oil is to have or safest fat, well, the basic thing is it should be solid at room temperature. The more solid it is, that's a really good surrogate marker for the less double bonds, less prone to oxidation. And one more key point here is you have to strictly control your blood sugar levels. I did a study looking at uh, oxidized oil intake and how much was actually taken up into the body in a group of well-controlled diabetics and poorly controlled diabetics and healthy people. And what they actually found is that the level of oxidized products that ended up in your system in the poorly controlled diabetics was significantly greater 
order of magnitude greater than in people who were either well controlled or didn't have diabetes in the first place. And we know this makes sense because fluctuations in your blood sugar levels actually does generate oxidative stress within the mitochondria. So we've got evidence of this as well. So what I'm now recommending for my patients is that they avoid any liquid fat, including fish oil. And if they want to make sure they get the fish oil, it's got to be from fresh food. And that includes not having olive oil. And if they still are having any oils at all, it's absolutely essential that they have strict blood sugar control. Is there any, what, 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 what issues would there be from getting the oils from like the whole food, like salmon, but you're like grilling it at a higher temperature? Is that a problem too then? Or is it, is it somehow different at that point? Look, we can hypothesize there's been no studies that I've read that look at the specific nature of oxidation of all the fat. So we know that, you know, theoretically you get, uh, you know, production of some chemicals that are not so good when you, you basically burn proteins and you overcook them. Um, whether you're cooking it on a, you know, a moist heat or a high heat, I haven't read the specific research. I, I would suggest that you don't want to overcook them but I don't have, I can't reference any papers specifically that tells you it's a bad idea. Certainly for me, I eat a lot of red meat and a lot of that is medium rare. So, um, and I'm comfortable with that. Yeah, Paul, I wanted just to, just to touch back on the point about blood glucose control. Cause I know, I think I saw something from the AHA perhaps saying that, you know, one of their thoughts is now is it's important to con control blood glucose, but, the way they frame that is we do that by putting people on SGLT2 inhibitors <laughs> rather than adjusting yeah. the diet, which I think, I mean, they're, they're, they're waking up to the fact that this glucose stability is important, but the solution is another, you know, another drug, which I think is. I don't know, Sean, are you suggesting they're in somebody's pocket? <laughs> I, I just making the observation and, and I'm just kind of a little disappointed that they don't talk about <laughs> Oh, look, it's absolutely ridiculous. So in one of my lectures a few years ago, um, I was presenting on uh, the effects of different diets on uh, glucose. And there was this paper was published in a, a diabetic journal and they couldn't call it a, uh, a low carb diet. So they called it a low bag diet, low biologically available glucose diet. Uh, I think uh, mentioning low carb is an absolute anathema in a diabetic journal and they're still obviously got this issue. I mean, the research is staring them in the face. If you don't put the sugar into the system, then, you know, half the problem's gone instantly and they just don't, they don't get it. Yeah, no, it is a little bit interesting. Um, have you seen a lot of patients now with inflammatory bowel disease? I mean, let me ask you this, cause we've had people like Chabato, Sophia Clemens, and they feel that this, much of this, even even they're saying blood glucose and, and insulin is is secondary to this gut, you know, this gut issue. Do you find that the primary root starts in the gut, or do you think it's no? I, I actually tend to think of them as two separate entities almost. I, I think we we have markers of metabolic health and we have markers of autoimmune health, and they do interact. But uh, quite often, somebody can be metabolically healthy with good insulin levels and good glucose levels, and still have a bunch of autoimmune stuff and gut inflammation going on. So. I think while there, there are interactions and one will definitely make the other worse, I think it's possible to, for them to occur in isolation. Um, so if I'm having a patient come in, um, if you have, 
the way my worldview on it is we have a look at the genome-wide association studies and we see that inflammatory bowel disease is basically at the heart of most every autoimmune disease in terms of at least a genome-wide analysis. So there's definitely that association there. And I'm probably leaning, leaning on the side that I believe that the inflammatory bowel is probably causative in terms of other autoimmune issues. So I'm measuring fecal calprotectin to have a look at intestinal inflammation. I'm measuring a whole lot of antibodies in the blood, uh, the most common being um, thyroid disease. So we have uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis or Graves' disease or something like this. Um, we often can test for celiac antibodies. It's not uncommon now to see autoimmune diabetes in adults, what we call latent autoimmune um, diabetes of adulthood, um, where we, there's several antibodies we look for, like glutamic acid decarboxylase or anti cell antibodies or what have you. Um, but basically, uh, if I see somebody has these antibodies, I'll usually go hunting and look for bowel inflammation. And more often than not, there does appear to be a connection. Um, and we change their diet to eliminate these, you know, potentially provocative agents. And we will see that the antibodies over time, and it can be a period of months, it can be a prolonged um, time it takes to respond with the antibodies, but it will usually come down. Um, the inflammation in the bowel actually seems to come down much, much quicker. Um, at the same time, we'll often also see improvements in insulin levels, both fasting and with a glucose tolerance test and HbA1c and these other parameters, triglycerides, these things which are inherently associated with metabolic health. But I, I tend to treat them differently. I think if somebody comes in and they're diabetic and they have no intestinal inflammation, no detectable antibodies, their thyroid examination physically is normal, all these other factors, then I'm quite happy for them to continue consuming certain plant-based lectins and things like that because they seem to have genetics that allows them to tolerate that. And just by cutting out the carbs, we can get control of their metabolic health well enough. If they have autoimmune issues, then it's a different ball game. Hey, Paul, let me ask you about, because uh, you talk about metabolic health and, and we traditionally look at things like hemoglobin A1C and, and glucose. Uh, now the CGMs are out there. Are you finding some discrepancies between, are you utilizing CGM in your practice? And if so, are you finding discrepancies between how reliable hemoglobin A1C? I, I see a lot of people seem to think it's falling out of favor as a, a reliable marker. What are your thoughts on that? Look, it's always been unreliable. Um, uh, first of all, CGMs, they're amazing. Um, I think that it allows you to personalize nutrition to somebody's personal carbohydrate threshold and people cannot hide when they have the evidence of a blood glucose spikes during them in the face, they can't pretend that they can continue eating that food and get away with it. Uh, in terms of HbA1c, it's got so many reasons that can be wrong. So basically you have a red blood cell sitting in, a, in, a, in your circulation in a soup of sugar molecules. And the sugar molecules over time will just gradually attach to the, to the red blood cell. So the longer the red blood cell is there, the more sugar will attach to it. So if you have a condition like iron deficiency anemia, when your body says, hey, I don't have enough red blood cells going around, rather than turning these over like I normally do, I'm going to hold on to them for a wee bit longer, then what you end up doing is uh, you end up with red blood cells that have got more sugar attached to them, so you've got an artificially elevated HbA1c. 
Alternatively, you might have a condition like something like a hemolytic anemia where your red blood cells are being destroyed for some reason. And that means you've got a lot of fresh red blood cells and they'll have very low levels of blood sugar attaching to them. So you look at your HbA1c, you'll say, hey, that looks absolutely fantastic. That's great. Then you might have somebody who's on a vegetarian diet and that diet will be deficient in something like carnitine. Now, carnitine is what we call a glycation inhibitor. That will actually block sugar from damaging proteins. And if you're deficient in carnitine, then that means you'll get an elevation in your HbA1c. And incidentally, when we give carnitine to type 1 diabetics, it's actually been shown in randomized controlled trials to reduce kidney damage and reduce average HbA1c. So th there's a number of factors in HbA1c, and it also only reflects an average. And I know we've talked about this before, but fluctuations in blood glucose levels are far more damaging than a stable one, even if it's higher. So I would much prefer a stable HbA1c that's a wee bit higher rather than one that's covered in peaks and troughs. And unfortunately, um, the HbA1c doesn't reflect this. There is another test called the glycomark that we can actually use to detect for extreme excursions of uh, blood sugar levels. But personally, I think there's nothing better than the continuous glucose monitor. And in terms of absolute levels, I counsel my patients not to be too focused on the absolute number, but to be focused on the gradient. If you can get it flatlined, I could care less whether it's flatlined at four, five, or six, as long as it's flat. Yeah, that's kind of what I've seen as a big excursion seemed to be the big problem with, with you know, the glycation and the, you know, the problems with vasculature and retinal problems. Um, let me, uh, oh, this is a, just an interesting tidbit. I was talking to a, to a manufacturer of the product in the U.S., and I was asking why it's, in the, at least in the U.S., why it requires a, a prescription because, you know, I can go to the Walgreens and, you know, the, the pharmacist and buy a finger stick glucometer, no problem. And it's basically the same thing. And they, the reason they said that is because in China, they can manufacture these for $10 or less. And they don't want to flood the market. So they have this barrier of entry by making it prescription only. So I think we'll see this. Well, we don't need a prescription in Australia. So interesting. I want to find that supplier in China. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> let me, let me, you touched on this a little bit, Paul, but I, this is, this seems to be another concern about iron intake and iron uptake. Uh, I've looked at it, looked at hepcidin and, and its role as it's influenced by insulin. Have you seen any issues with iron overload? Uh, my thought is iron storage issues sort of run with metabolic uh, disease. And once that, once that clears up, we don't have iron issues. But what has been your experience with people on so high, high this, iron diets? So carnivore diet's a high iron diet, right? Potentially. So let's have a look at what most doctors look at to determine high levels of iron. It's called ferritin. So ferritin is a, is a molecule that stores iron inside it. And the big problem is that your storage level of iron doesn't reflect the iron that's available to your body. And as you know, with hepcidin and all these, uh, you know, regulation of ferroportin and these kind of things, you can have high levels of iron in the body that your body can't access. And to understand this, we need to understand a bit of evolutionary history. So we've evolved being exposed to infections. And they, a lot of these pathogens need iron to survive. So when we get an infection and our body's inflamed, Basically, the signal goes out to say, hey, let's lock our iron stores away. That makes it easiest for us to eradicate this pathogen. And that's a very 
sensible adaptive response. So you get an infection, you lock your iron stores away in ferritin. So any iron that's coming into your body is just being stuffed into ferritin. Your ferritin stores will increase in size, but the iron is not available to the pathogen. So your immune system can clear it easier. Um, but it's also important to note that when it's not available to the pathogen, it's also not available for your body. Now, if it's a short-lived infection, that's no problem. But what happens if you now have inflammation that's autoimmune in nature and is persistent months or years at a time? Well, the body perceives that as being an infection because it doesn't know how else to respond. So it responds by locking all the, all the iron that comes into your body gets stuffed into your ferritin stores. So your ferritin stores increase and increase and increase. Doctor does a blood test and says, oh, Sean, you're ferritin level is huge. You've got heaps of iron. There's no problem at all. Well, we have this thing called anemia of chronic inflammation, which mimics iron deficiency anemia. And what that means is that you can have a massive level of iron, but you're, it's actually inaccessible to your body. So what we find is that when we deal with the inflammation, we have to deal with the autoimmune disease. We deal because that's usually what's causing it. We deal with the inflammation then the iron actually gets released from the iron stores and your body can start to use it as normal. So your ferritin stores will then actually go down. But at the same time, your ferritin stores are going down, your iron availability is increasing because it's now available for use. So let's have a think about how iron is used in the body. So iron is used in cytochrome enzymes necessary for production of energy. So if you're deficient in iron, and that can either be this um, secondary inflammation, what we call a functional iron deficiency, or it could be an absolute iron deficiency. Say, for instance, you have a, a female who's had heavy periods and a couple of children and, uh, you know, uh, these kind of things that you lose iron in all of those. Then your energy expenditure pathways are impaired. And they've done studies in females who have been iron deficient where they've actually measured their body weight and their fat mass, et cetera, et cetera. And then they've given them iron infusions and they haven't done any other intervention and they've lost weight and their energy expenditure has increased. So deficiency of iron, either functional or absolute, will impair your weight loss. And then we come to the mental effects. And this is something that most people do not understand is that iron is necessary for synthesis of neurotransmitters, the currency of the brain. So dopamine, which makes you feel good, serotonin, noradrenaline, these all require iron to be synthesized. So if you're chronically inflamed and your body can't access iron, you actually end up deficient in neurotransmitters. And as you know, people who are in chronic inflamed state or iron deficient state come in with depression and anxiety. So what's happening is these chemicals that they need to function normally in their brain to make them feel good, they're feeling like they're just living in a gray veil. So what do they do? So the dopamine is essential. It's in what we call the mesolimbic pathway, it gets released and we feel good, we get reward. And if you're deficient in dopamine, as you are on an iron deficient diet, well, you say, well, look, this is crap. I don't like existing like this. If I eat something sweet, that's going to squeeze out the last vestige of dopamine and it's going to give me a transient release from this depression that I'm feeling. So this ends up driving people towards self-medicating with sweet foods and they they'll crave, they'll binge eat, they'll respond. And that's a perfectly reasonable response in their situation. Their situation being that they're feeling depressed, they're feeling sad, their neurotransmitters are deficient. And this is a way of partially taking away that feeling for a short period of time. 
So what we find is that when we take away the inflammation and we see their C-reactive protein and their erythrocyte sedimentation rate and these other markers come down and these acute phase proteins, people will come in and they'll say, number one, I feel better. And number two, I have no cravings. And you probably know better than I do the amount of people who will come in and say, I've started the carnivore diet and I no longer have any cravings. And that's the mechanism. It actually comes back down to this release of iron. And while the iron stores might look like they're actually lower in the body, the utilization of the iron is actually better. And just to, I guess, address your question more pointedly at the start about what happens to iron on a carnivore diet, I've had several patients who have been heterozygous um, for some hemochromatosis genes. And usually, because we address the inflammation, their ferritin stores will actually fall, not increase on a carnivore diet. Yeah, that's what I've seen. I've, I've seen people with, you know, ferritins of 2000 plus, which is, you know, huge, go and needing, you know, biweekly blood draws uh, to go from to that to a normal ferritin level with no, no more blood draws, which I think, and, and eating way more heme iron than, than obviously the doctor's telling and what, and now you. And the understanding is that it's an inflammatory response. So you're dealing with the inflammation, which is a trigger for the iron stores or the ferritin to increase. Now, there is actually a key point with hemochromatosis that is actually important that it, as a genetic condition, it is associated with hypertriglyceridemia, high triglyceride levels, and it's also associated with oxidized LDL levels. So when we do this uh, lipid electrophoresis on the LDL subfractions, um, people with hemochromatosis, this extra iron that they have going around can actually contribute to increased oxidative stress. And there's some early studies, mainly in animals, looking at antioxidants like N-acetylcysteine and melatonin and the impact that that can have on reducing the oxidative stress that is inherently associated with hemochromatosis. But it's certainly interesting to note that this group of people actually have a, a distinct lipid profile compared to the rest of the population. You touched on earlier a little bit about, we, we kind of started to talk, were you going to start to talk about uh, addictions and those types of things with diet, ketogenic diet, carnivore diet. Um, I see time and time again, people that are smokers, drinkers, illicit drug users, they, they, for some reason are able to stop that. Why do you think that's going on with diet? Look, it's interesting. So with addictive behavior, I mean, I guess the prototypical ones are smoking and drinking. Um, and the premise of that in general is dopamine which is the chemical in the mesolimbic pathway is inherently rewarding. We have a, a cigarette or we have a you know, shot of vodka, the dopamine is released and the behavior is reinforced. So in Scandinavian countries for a long period of time, they use a drug called naltrexone, which actually blunts the release of dopamine from the brain. So what I used to use, I used to actually use this medication, not for alcohol addiction, although I still use it for alcohol addiction, but also for binge eating. So if you take naltrexone, an hour before you can put, you'll be in a situation to binge eat or to drink alcohol, then when you do that behavior, this rewarding release is actually blunted. So it's sort of like drinking a glass of warm milk. It's like not entirely unpleasant, but it's not exactly that rewarding. And over time, it actually breaks that connection in your brain where I must do this to get the reward. So I found that naltrexone is moderately effective for that. 
but what is actually more effective is, as we just talked about, with the restoring the neurotransmitter levels by improving the access to iron, then that's actually, once we restore the baseline neurotransmitter levels, people are then able to, they don't need to self-medicate with smoking or alcohol or binge eating to restore their mood because their moods are just naturally better. So I you know, we, we tend to see these addictive behaviors become less. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, no, I, I think there's a lot of, you know, reasons why we see improvements in, in some of those things. Um, mental health is another one. I know it, it kind of falls into this overlap of addictive behavior, but I mean, there's a number of studies showing low carnitine levels, uh, related to major depressive disorder, you know, we, you know, you mentioned carnitine. Carnosine is a, a powerful anti-glycating agent. Shows improvements in brain health, brain aging. There was just a study that came out two days ago. I'm not sure if you're aware of it. It talked about low carbohydrate diets and uh, they, they were they they called it brain stability, neuron stability. Yeah, yeah. and that was uh, well. If we have a look, I mean, there's a huge amount of nutrients um, that are essential to cognitive function that are in the brain. So they, they did a study, the first, uh, you know, this is uh, probably 15 years ago, it was done at Sydney University, local to here. They actually did a randomized controlled trial on uh, creatine uh, supplementation, creatine monohydrate. And they found that giving creatine to vegetarians actually increased their intelligence, quite literally the performance on cognitive testing. And that makes sense because the brain is a very energy dependent organ. And creatine is, you know, very beneficial for these energy pathways. And vegetarian and vegan diets are effectively deficient in creatine. So it makes sense. And every study we look at, if you have a look at iron, you have a look at zinc, you have, a, you know, the, you can, you could write a, uh, an encyclopedia covering all the essential nutrients in animal foods that are important for cognitive function. Yeah, I've, I've, I've seen many of them and it's, you know, it's interesting to see that. It, it's interesting to see that play out clinically too. And it's almost right staring right in front of our face, but instead our answer, you know, is, you know, some sort of antidepressant SSRI or something like that instead. When Well, know, the really interesting thing is I'm speaking to a couple of psychologists at the moment. And the interesting thing is they've actually moved away from the old model of psychology, the cognitive behavioral therapy. And they're actually sort of embracing the new science that there is a physical reason why these people are depressed. And we don't have to give them talking therapy and sit on a couch with a shrink every week and all of this. If you just restore normal physiology, normal nutrient status, normal neurotransmitter level through diet, they'll just be happy. Their mood will improve. Yeah, that is, uh, you know, a lot of people get happy when they have a steak. Um, what do you have coming up, Paul? I mean, are you, are you working on a book or anything like that? Or what's going on with your, with your practice? I've sort of been working on a book for a while, but yeah, you... God only knows when it'll come out. It's slow progress. <laughs> so we've got a, a conference at Sydney Uni coming up on the 9th of May. Um, I'm heading over to Salt Lake City, you know, depending on how this whole Corona stuff pans out in April um, for a conference and hopefully back in, uh, in August in San Diego, for another conference. So I'm missing out on uh, the uh, Denver this year, which is, uh, that's coming up soon. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not going to Denver as well. I think I may see you in San Diego, I think. Um, 
Yeah, speaking of the coronavirus, there are, again, I, I had the audacity to mention a paper that came out talking about, I think it was carnosine, answerine, carnitine, L-hydroxyproline, and uh, oh, one more I'm forgetting. But anyway, they had a paper out there that was put out in the literature. And, and basically in that paper, they said, you know, these things can, you know, these things help with the immune system and can help uh, fight off infections, parasitic infections, including things like coronavirus. And that got me flagged on YouTube as, as heretical, saying that you know, eat, being healthy and eating good food is 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 a is a way to boost your immune immune system. Do you have any thoughts? Oh, come on, Sean. Next thing you're going to tell people to not eat carbs if they got diabetes. <laughs> oh, it's crazy. Um, do you have any thoughts on uh, diet and immune system? Yeah, look, I haven't dug into it too deeply, but you know, just from memory, we have a look at LDL. That's essential for the function of the immune system. There have been some studies I've uh, read previously looking at the state of ketosis uh, being important in T-cell function, which is obviously uh, essential to uh, viral eradication. Um, so there's certainly, let's put it this way, I'm not concerned that I have a high LDL level and I'm not concerned that I'm being in ketosis if I'm being exposed to the coronavirus. I, 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 have, no, I have no issue with that. I don't yes. believe that is placing me at any more risk. Yeah, any more risk, you know, but it's dangerous to suggest it would put you at less risk. I, I, I think. Well, if you want to be booted off Facebook, then. Right. Yeah, <laughs> you, for, you forgot to tell them to wash their hands before they eat the steak, Sean. You would have been fine if you would have done that. Well, I did, you know, I, just, <laughs> I said, take their use precautions, you know, cover your mouth when you sneeze and cough, you know, wash your hands, you know, do all this stuff. Well, here's the thing. I mean, the genie's not going back in the bottle on this one, guys. And so sooner or later, I think in the next two years, most of us are going to probably have been exposed to coronavirus. So I think the best thing we can do is to make sure that we're as healthy as we can so that when we get it, hopefully it's a mild illness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that goes for every illness. I mean, you look at that, I mean, influenza, where it wipes out all the old frail people. And, you know, the interesting thing about the coronavirus is apparently it doesn't seem to be attacking kids as much, you know, the, the sort of... Mm. That's, that's what I've seen so far, but maybe that's changed. Well, that's a, no, that's the data I've seen. So that actually reassures me a wee bit. Um, but I did hear from somebody yesterday, and I, I haven't validated this, that it might be associated with pulmonary fibrosis, um, which could have long-lasting impacts. So, and that would obviously be <laughs> quite poor. And some people seem to have an overwhelming immune response, something like systemic inflammatory uh, um, response. So... Uh, where the immune system might actually cause more damage than the virus itself. So, and I don't think, I don't think we're being told the full story. I, I'm almost certain we haven't been told the full story and we're still waiting for a lot of things to play out. So I think we'll see what happens from uh, Western countries. I think, you know, European data, so on and so forth is going to be much more reliable than what's coming out of uh, you know, Iran and um, China and these kind of places. So, I think uh, we're going to learn a bit more, but you know, for what it's worth, the genie's out of the bottle. It's not going back in. Brace yourself. Yeah, I'll eat another steak for that. that, that that's how I'm bracing myself. This, you know, well, you want to be careful that you don't fade away to normal. Maybe you should have two. <laughs> you have two, something like that. Two exactly. just in case. Well, Paul, this has been great. You know, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, it's, you're always full of great information. Um, uh, hopefully, I'll, like I said, get to see you in, in, in San Diego, I think. And I think it's August. Are you going to speak at that low-carb San Diego? Is that the plan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's okay. the one. Yeah, yeah, I think I'm speaking there as well. So we'll see that. Hopefully, we'll have 
Hopefully that study will be published. I think Ludwig says it turns around pretty quickly once they get rolling. Whoa. I think, you know, so hopefully we'll get it out and published. Well, I would appreciate a, a bit of a pre-publication heads up there. Yeah. Well, that'll, be, that'll be exciting. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not one of the authors. I'm just coordinating the, 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 the sort of the participants and they, you know, I, I've done some stuff similar that they're kind of doing a little bit replicating a little bit, but more in a, you know, for, for peer real peer reviewed, uh, you know, data, yeah. so that type of stuff. So, well, I might actually try and lean on you guys too for some recruitment. So when we yeah. get this study on glycogen levels off the ground, you know, just sort of, yeah, I know it's I mean, been done, but look, repure, into, so. look into this product. There's a, there's a, you know, I, cause I, cause somebody approached me and I was, he was showing me some exercise bike and he says, the only bike proven to lower, you know, to completely deplete, to, to completely deplete your glycogen levels, blah, blah, blah. I was like, you know, is this like a, like a, like a, uh, what's the test? The, uh, you know, the sprint test on the bike. I'm blanking the name right now. Zach, you guys know the wind gate, wind gate. Yeah. Oh, it's like wind a wind gate, gate yeah. type deal. I said, why is this thing any better than any other thing? And I said, how do you know that? And he said, well, we, we measure glycogen. Levels. I said, well, how did you guys do that? And he said, well, we have an ultrasound that does that. And I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you didn't biopsy the guys. They said, no, this is a new technology that they've been using. It's been, it's been validated against biopsy. And I looked at some of the primary research and it looks like it pretty legit. So, you know, if you can get people to- Oh well, shit, I if know, that works. Right. If that works, it's easy to assess, you know, they're doing it in the thigh, you know, I think vastus lateralis probably, but, you know, they're able to measure it and it, they, they biopsy it. They've done comparison studies and it's like 98, 96% you know, yeah. correlates. So that would be pretty helpful. That means anybody who's a pussy like me and doesn't want to be, you know, right have a stuff. chunk of muscle cut out, then <laughs> yeah. we're all good. Yeah, there you go. But that would be a avoid the muscle way. biopsy if you can. Yeah, would, <laughs> no, 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 no. You're not helping recruitment here, Zach. <laughs> no, but that would be a good way to get a lot of information rapidly if, that, if that's, you know, that's available because and I don't know what it costs and if it's available in Australia, but I, I assume it would be. I mean, it's, you know. What's, what you need to do, Paul, is you need to get some of the athletes who can't help themselves in terms of taking an off season and just get them to do the muscle biopsy because then they'll take some time off and it'll do them a favor. Uh, yeah, yeah. Now, now, now you're working for it. <laughs> you got you to gotta work with, so downstream, not upstream. <laughs> no, well, that's awesome. So, uh, Always a pleasure chatting with you guys. Awesome, Paul. Well, I got to go eat dinner uh, with uh, Eric West, as Eric Westman and some of these other folks and uh, just, you know, see what's going on in their neck of the woods. Well, say good day for me and uh, will, have an extra steak to uh, one. <laughs> We're going to a Brazilian all-you-can-eat plot, so it'll be no, no problem getting plenty of food there. <laughs> I'll tell you what, the best Brazilian I've been has been in the States. So uh, you guys, uh, I absolutely am, wrecks I'm, on what we got here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to actually going to Brazil. I'm going down there in uh, in June to speak, and so I will try Brazilian steakhouse in Brazil and see if it's, uh, you know, see what it shakes out, see how good it's going to be. I'm looking forward to that. So, yep, I'll, I'll be following that one. <laughs> well, guys, awesome right, guys. Thanks, thanks, thanks for having me back on. You want to share where people can find you? Yeah, quick, and right, we'll yeah. put them the links in the show notes. Oh yeah. Um, I'm on Twitter, uh, Dr. Paul Mason. I've got a YouTube channel at Dr. Paul Mason. Um, and I've got, uh, some videos they get put on this website, lowcarbdownunder.com.au. So, uh, either of those, um, yeah. Otherwise, uh, look out for me. We'll probably do this again. Yeah, no doubt. Sometime. No, so I'll be back on HPO. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. All right. I got to jump. Thanks guys. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing 
and due to the growth we are looking to take on some new sponsors so if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.